0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. Now that teachers in the state's largest school district have voted overwhelmingly to strike, what happens now? It would be the first strike in Denver Public Schools in 25 years. Teachers want better pay and want to simplify the bonus structure. DPS officials have asked the Colorado Department of Labor to intervene, and the superintendent will meet with the governor today. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine joins us. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Andrea. How many teachers and students would be affected
1: by a strike? The strike would affect 5,300 teachers and 71,000 students. About 20,000 charter school students and their teachers wouldn't be involved. And a strike could start as early as next Monday, but a lot could happen between now and then. Negotiations can continue. Here's Denver Classroom Teachers Association lead negotiator Rob Gould announcing the results.
2: 93% voted to strike. They're striking for better pay. They're striking for our profession, and they're striking for Denver students.
0: So I understand teachers voted because the DCTA, the Denver Classroom Teachers Association, on Friday rejected the district's offer.
1: Yes, that's right. More than $8 million divides the two sides. They also disagree over different ways and how often teachers can qualify for salary increases. DPS Superintendent Susana Cordova says the district wants to head off a strike. We think it's really important that we are continuing to try to
3: resolve this issue. We think it's really critical that the state intervenes because we have worked very
1: hard, in very good faith, with lots of movements. So the strike could start as early as Monday, but we'll have to see what a response from the Department of Labor might look like. So what are a range of options? Typically, the Department of Labor could order a mediator from both sides, but the two sides already used a federal mediator last spring and a private mediator more recently. The state could order a new mediator. They could order fact-finding and something called arbitration and conciliation. These are other formal processes designed to settle this kind of impasse. They could also decline to get involved like they did for the Pueblo teachers' strike last year. Any decision would come within two weeks. So we'll get into what this decision
0: means for parents and students. But first, let's talk about the teachers. Why did they vote the
1: way they did? Many of the teachers I talked to described how wrenching their decision was. I spoke with about 30 teachers on Saturday, and here's how one teacher, Isabel King, came to a decision.
4: We sat after school for about an hour on Friday afternoon yesterday, tired, but sat in the library together, about eight of us, trying to figure out what would be the best thing to do, whether or not to strike is it kind of emotional? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And p- people are upset about this. We feel for our kids. We feel for other teachers. I'm making a decision not just for me, but for whatever, 4,000 other teachers in the district. It's going to impact many, many thousands of kids. It's, it's a very emotional. These are real people, you know. We don't build machines at a factory. We work with people.
1: She felt like the district has made some compromises. The district says its proposal offers more than 20 million in new money, but the unions called for 28 million. And what do salaries look like in the district's latest proposal? Starting salaries for new Denver teachers would be $45,500. The district says that's higher than neighboring large districts such as Jefferson County, Aurora, Adams, five star and second only to Boulder Valley they say a typical dps teacher with a bachelor's degree and 20 years of experience would earn more than 76000 so that's base pay of around 70000 plus 6000 in bonus pay from incentives so what does teacher isabel king say about that well here she is
4: we have a wage that, on paper, looks higher than many other districts, so I felt hesitant, like, oh, I make X amount of money per year, that's not nothing, teachers in rural schools are making 20000 30000 a year, so that made me hesitant. But I ultimately decided, because I do want to live in the place that I teach, and I don't want to commute for an hour from a place with more reasonable cost of living, that I do deserve to be paid a wage that keeps up with cost of living.
1: And that's what most teachers I spoke with said. Many say they're they're at the breaking point, both financially and emotionally. Many work 60-hour weeks. Heather Jackson is a special education teacher.
5: Most teachers, including myself, work second jobs. And it's difficult to manage that work-life balance when you're investing so much energy with the high
0: demands without being compensated fairly. So the district offered more than $20 million in new money, which Superintendent Cordova says is a compelling offer.
3: I'm not sure that we have seen anywhere across the nation teachers who have gone on strike
0: to reject a 10% increase. Now, the 10% is an average, though,
1: right, Jenny? Uh, not every teacher would get that much. Exactly. And it includes previously agreed upon cost of living raises. I spoke with some teachers who would get 10%. Another I spoke with would get a 3% bump. The district also wants to maintain incentives for teachers to work in tough schools or teach in hard-to-fill subjects like math. The union, by contrast, wants that money instead used to increase base salaries. And there's another. Big issue in this contract. That's the idea of bonus or incentive pay. Teachers say it's too complicated and even varies from year to year. They don't think incentives help and they want more money in their base pay. The district says incentive pay is critical to encouraging teachers to take jobs in tough schools or teach subjects where there are you know, teacher shortages like math. That will have to get resolved. One teacher who voted no, Linda Weiss, has taught 23 years. She agrees teachers should be paid even more and says the district is way too top-heavy, but... It seemed like a fair proposal to me, and it seemed like they kept coming back with more offers, and I didn't hear that much from the union.
0: Okay, so what happens to students with teachers out of
1: the classroom? So schools will be open, meals will be served, buses will run, and there will be aftercare. Superintendent Cordova says students will be safe and learning. We'll have high-quality lesson plans in every school, at every
3: grade level, every content area. We have efforts underway to recruit substitute
1: teachers All licensed staff who work outside of schools will be deployed to our schools to cover classrooms. And she said the district will find subs for all the teachers in part by paying double what they, they're paid now. She thinks some federal workers might fit the bill, and she promises these subs they'll have lesson plans to lose, use. But that's a huge task. The district only has about 1,200 approved subs, and it's unclear how many of the 5,000 teachers will walk out. Uh, the union is also encouraging t- students to attend schools. Any other ways they can fill the gap? A memo to central office staff says all non-essential central office work will be suspended and people in central office will be assigned to schools. So some security and payroll folks will keep on doing their jobs. Other staff have the option of getting a guest teaching license to support in the classroom, or they can serve on lunch duty or be a hall monitor, things like that. Now, I imagine
0: being in a classroom would be a new experience for some of that central office staff.
1: Yeah. In the memo, Cordova says she understands that staff may have many feelings about this, ranging from eagerness to apprehension to confusion. But the district's core value, she says, is putting students first. What about parents? What's the district telling them? What I just mentioned, and also parents should make sure their personal information is updated in the parent portal. That's the computer system parents use to connect with the district, as well as updated information about their children's medications. So bargaining could start up again if the district comes in with a new offer or the state steps in. Jenny, thank you, and you'll be
0: closely tracking any developments with the negotiations. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, she's been updating us on the current impasse in the Denver Public Schools. It's Colorado's largest public school district. Teachers have voted to strike and could do so as early as Monday. Like a lot of outdoor professionals, rock climbing guides have been mostly male. Now a new program from the American Mountain Guides Association is offering its first ever women-only rock guiding course. It'll be in Boulder and will be taught by women for women. One of the instructors and the president of AMGA is Angela Haas. Hi, Angela. Hi, Andrea. Tell us about the sport. How do men and women compare to each other?
3: Women and men compare to each other kind of like apples and oranges. You know, we're built differently. We think differently. Because women generally have smaller statures and not as much musculature, we tend to approach climbs with more uh, focus on balance and, and grace and really problem solving instead of, uh, you know, just strength to, to get us to the top. And not to say that men rely on strength, but they have that to their advantage. So women sometimes approach things somewhat differently.
0: So I imagine guiding for women by a woman might come from a
3: different perspective. I do think that in general, women might... Have a bit more focus on a supportive environment one that that maybe is less competitive at times, one that maybe is a little bit more patient. But again, I don't want to say that men don't do that because I know a lot of male guides that are, you know, incredibly patient and and very easy to work with. The main goal of this course is to get more
0: women into rock guiding. Why has it been hard for them to break into the profession in
3: the past? There's very few women role models that are working as guides and when I started guiding over 30 years ago, I had very few role models that, um, I could look up to as, as people that were, as women that were successful and had carved out a career and that had longevity with that. You know, I, I knew I had role models like Lynn Hill and, you know, some of the, the really good rock climbers, but I didn't really have role models as women. And, you know, women, We want to have families and a lifestyle that supports some balance and not live out of our vehicles all of our lives. And uh, that was a bit of the culture of rock guiding when I began guiding a long time ago. And now we have uh, a lot more women that are successful full-time mountain guides that have uh, careers, that have families, they're working year-round and there's more mentorship, and I think these opportunities that we're uh, able to provide women that are curious and want to get into the, the career of guiding um, is really going to help open some doors, But because it's just not that fun sometimes to be in a group where it's all guys, and mm-hmm. sometimes there's a bit of a bro brawl banter, and, you know, it's not to just the guys, but sometimes that's just inherent to a bunch of guys hanging out. And uh, one of one of our goals at the AMGA is to help raise awareness with our instructor team and our membership of some of these things that, that really do have an impact on a minority, which might be a woman or a person of color in a group that, that they're not aware of. A guide isn't necessarily a tall, square-shouldered, full jawed guy that you know fits the mold that you might think about when you conjure up an image of a guide but a, a female who's a small statured but very competent at all the skill sets can be, be can can be a great guide as well and so I think there are those those stereotypes that are uh, cultural that we're, we're starting to break down and we're starting to have some tools to break those down which really is exciting. You already have co-ed courses. Will this be structured any differently from those? That's a great question. No, this won't be structured any differently at all because all of our courses are held to an international standard in terms of movement, in terms of all the criteria that we evaluate students on. So these women will all be held to the same standard. They'll be evaluated the same way by the instructor team that works with co-ed programs. You've been guiding in
0: some form for about 35 years. Have you ever felt like you were treated
3: differently because you're a woman? Very rarely has that entered into my experience. Um, I have had a few uh, employers, which I would call old school, that are kind of ingrained in the language of a guide is a guy and the guides referred to a he. And um, I think a lot of that, again, is just unconscious bias and not really kind of making an effort to change some of those perspectives in terms of clients. I've never felt like I was treated any differently because I was a woman. Now there, I've certainly felt when I approached someone to meet them for the first time that I uh, could perceive that they looked at how small I was and they're like, oh, you're going to be our guide. They didn't say that, but I've, you know, I've certainly felt that. But as soon as I, you know. Start talking and explaining what the day is going to be like and introducing myself and project my confidence and I, I, it just sets people at ease. And, and really that's a large part of, of guiding is just being really confident in your role and just communicating well that you're going to be able to take care of these people and they are, they're in good hands. In 2010,
0: you became the sixth woman in the U.S. to be fully certified as a guide under the International Federation of Mountain Guides. That offers one of the highest levels of training in the world. How did it feel to become the sixth woman to do that in the U.S.?
3: It, it was a huge relief when it was when I achieved that milestone. It was uh, I had worked towards it for a number of years, because I was already a working guide. And that opened so many opportunities for me to guide throughout the Alps and some of the greater ranges where I wouldn't have been able to um, without that certification and license. And so it was just really this incredibly empowering, but also a humbling experience at the same time, because I I once again felt small, because the world all of a sudden expanded again for me. Mm.
0: In the last couple of years, there have been a lot of reports that the river rafting industry can be misogynistic, that it has a lot of problems with sexual harassment. We alluded to this before, but have you seen similar issues in the rock-guiding world?
3: There are many forms of sexual harassment indeed, and um, we, we do. I think everyone falls prey to that. We have seen very few cases in our industry as a a guiding profession. I'd say quite a few less than you might see out at the crag. And I think that speaks to our level of professionalism. As we grow, those growing pains certainly do come with more potential for those those types of incidents to happen. And and I won't deny that we we have had a few of those and, and we're learning as an organization how to deal with those. And and uh, the repercussions that, that come with such behavior. And I think that that is just inherent in, in the world, and it's and our profession isn't immune to it. What shift needs to occur in the
0: outdoor community so things don't happen anymore in terms of sexual harassment?
3: I think one of the, the major things in harassment and balancing it all out is when, when we finally reach a place where the guys are the ones that call other guys out on it. And it's not Mm. the woman who has to call someone out on something that she's fallen victim to. And, you know, I think that women have been stereotyped in a lot of ways that if a woman is, you know, what a male might be considered direct, a woman might be called abrasive. Or if a guy is assertive, a woman might be labeled pushy. Mm. Or if, uh, if a guy's passionate, a woman might be considered emotional. So, you know, we're really all human. I think that's where the big shift has to take place. And, and putting ourselves in little pigeonholes and just treating each other more respectfully is, is basically the fundamental thing that needs to shift, is awareness of respect for all life. And that extends to life in the mountains, which we cherish and work in. Angela, thanks for joining us.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. Angela Haas is the president of the American Mountain Guides Association. She'll be one of the instructors for the organization's new women's-only rock guiding course in Boulder. The course starts in September. Colorado's Roy Halliday was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame Tuesday. The Arvada native died in a plane crash in November of 2017. Joining us now is the man who coached him at Arvada West High School, Jim Capra. And Coach, thanks for joining us.
6: Oh, thank you for uh, allowing me to, to come on your show. Thank you.
0: This has to be something of a bittersweet moment for you, seeing Roy elected, but not being able to celebrate with him. What are your thoughts?
6: Uh, just exactly what you said it's a, it's a great honor for him and his family, but uh, for him to not be able to uh, receive the the honor personally and and in person and uh, be there with his family and, and uh, teammates and friends it's uh, kind of a tragic situation.
0: Roy's widow, Brandy, issued a statement saying Roy's goal wasn't to be in the Hall of Fame. It was, quote, to be successful every single day of his 16-year career. This announcement is the end result of that effort, unquote. You started working with Halliday when he was in eighth grade. What would you have said the odds were back then that this day would come?
6: Uh, I don't think you can ever predict uh, coaching somebody uh, that would receive this type of honor um, but with his uh, character and uh, work ethic along with his talent that that percentage would uh, surely go up but I wouldn't want to put a uh, eighth grade status on uh, making it to the hall of fame though how, how
0: proud are you of your role in his election
6: uh, i'm I'm proud that uh, I had an opportunity to work with him and and know him and um call him a call him a friend uh, after he graduated and uh, keep in touch with him and all the things that we did together traveling and uh practicing and and going to uh lessons and things like that it was it was just a, a great time being with him and he was so much fun to be with uh, on and off the field, and uh, personality-wise, and uh, I also was was able to follow him. You know, a lot of people probably aren't aware that he played basketball in high school, and and watch him bring that intensity to the to the basketball court, and basically everything that he did.
0: What else about Roy stood out to you?
6: Oh, just. Just everything that that everybody says about him, uh, his work ethic, his character, his uh, ability to uh, be humble when most kids during that time period uh, were not uh, moving into his professional career and, and becoming such a, a family man and a father and. Uh, just watching him grow up and and uh, be so successful in all areas of life—it's uh, just astonishing what he's what he's been able to accomplish holiday
0: spent 16 seasons in the majors with the Toronto Blue Jays and Philadelphia Phillies. Among his career achievements were five seasons with at least 19 wins. He won two Cy Young Awards given to the best pitcher in baseball. In 2010, he became only the second player in postseason history to throw a no-hitter.
2: Holiday is one strike away. The 0-2. A bouncer. Ruiz. Into! Roy Halladay has thrown a no-hitter!
0: So we'll end on that note. Coach, thanks so much for joining us.
6: I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew.
0: Jim Capra is the coach at Adams State University. Before that, he coached Roy Halladay at Arvada West High School. He joined us to discuss Halladay's election Tuesday to the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
7: I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how
4: now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state.
7: Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of his toughest moments as Colorado's governor, what that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is
0: Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. The famous naturalist John Muir is known for very tangible achievements, his crusade to preserve Yosemite National Park, his founding of the Sierra Club. But a new film explores something harder to describe, his spiritual connection to the wilderness.
6: It was an encounter, a mystical encounter with the vastness and the great scope Of uh,
7: nature.
0: Boulder filmmaker Michael Conti's documentary is called The Unruly Mystic. John Muir and Michael, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: The film isn't as much about John Muir's life as it is about nature and spiritualism. But briefly, tell us a little more about him. He was from Scotland originally.
7: He, He immigrated to the United States when he was eight years old. And was in Wisconsin, which is where he basically grew up. And when he was in his early teens, he went to college. But because of the Civil War, he decided um, he didn't really want to be brought into that battle. And he went to Canada. He came back after the war and then did this amazing thousand-mile walk from Wisconsin all the way down to the uh, to the Gulf of Mexico.
0: Mm. This film is just one in a series about people you call unruly mystics. What do you mean by that term?
7: Well, it's a great it's a great question. The unruly mystic is is what I would think of also as like crazy wisdom. Uh-huh. So, I think of us as all having the ability to have mystical encounters, but we we tend to be kind of in our own in our own box. Um but there are these mystics who are also unruly, they kind of break out of the box that the box that they're already in. And so I'm, I'm exploring who those people are through people that have been inspired by them.
0: And was there an example, a time in Muir's life, where you'd define him as an unruly mystic?
7: Yeah, I, the, the story that I really i am very fond of, and, and it's told by several people in the film, is about when he climb, climbs up into, um, into a pine tree in a storm— to To get closer to God, um, so the tree is swaying back and forth, and he's moving back and forth, and you know the the danger of actually being struck by lightning is probably pretty high when you're up in up in a tree. Mm-hmm. And I think that story is just such a great story for myself, having been up in the in the high country here in Colorado once, and having to seek cover underneath um, some tundra trees, which are kind of like the stunted trees. And just feeling the tree moving back and forth as this um, squall came over us was just, uh, was just amazing, just feeling that connection. Mm.
0: What are you trying to get your audience to do as a result of seeing this film? What reaction do you want from them?
7: I want to remind them of, of the awe of nature. Um, there is a the component of seeing a film in a theater and when the the experience is experiential, it reminds them of that connection that we have with nature, that connection of of looking up at a peak or a hill, going like, I wanna go up there, I wanna look and see what's on the other side. That is what I think people can walk away from when they experience this film, and that is what John Muir wrote about and his writings are what reminds us of that that connection. Mm.
0: In a way, it's no surprise that Muir had what you're describing as the spiritual way of thinking. He was a minister's son, but he didn't talk or write about his feelings in terms of traditional religion. Here's theologist Mary Riemann. He writes about it in a way
1: that conveys holiness and sacredness. And so it helps us recognize that we don't have to only find God in a church. That in fact we can encounter God even more intimately, more directly in nature.
0: Is there an example of something Muir wrote that explains what she's describing?
7: There are there are a lot of different stories that that he shares. There's there's one that I, I I'm fond of, which is between two trees, you're gonna find the place that you're seeking. And that is more about that kind of exploring, that kind of wandering that we may do when we go into the wild or into nature where we're open to, to what the possibilities are. And we're not on a sidewalk. We're not kind of going in a linear fashion. We're just following. Those are, those are the sorts of things. And, you know, um, Reverend Mary Riemann talking about that in the film is, is reinforcing that, that story
0: there's a turning point in Muir 's life. He was in an accident temporarily lost his sight. How did that change him
7: that was a big that was a big change for him and you, you it's hard to it's hard to imagine losing losing your sight and and going blind he He got hit in the eye with a with a metal filing and he was in his twenties he was growing up during the 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 beginning of the industrial revolution and he was an inventor and so he was in the factory. Um, inventing, and he got blinded, and his other eye became sympathetic to that eye, and he lost his sight. And here's somebody who was so attuned to to nature, to seeing, that in that darkness, he started to really question why he was doing what he was doing. I, you know, I guess he had an existential crisis. Mm. And from that, when he recovered, he made the trek out to the west and went to Yosemite, and and the rest the rest is history. From that, and for those of us who haven't been to Yosemite, I, I took my fourteen-year-old um, son there when I was in the process of making the film, and it was just amazing to watch and h- listen to him go like, "Dad, this is really cool. This is more cool than I thought. I thought it was going to be." And John Muir going there and having that having that experience really imprinted in his brain what he ended up doing for the rest of his his life because that was really his his home place.
0: It's incredible to feel this personal spiritual connection, but even in Muir's time development threatened places like Yosemite. The bill to make it a national park was signed in 1906. Talk about his role in preserving the park.
7: Yeah, I can't I can't really talk a lot about that from a historical standpoint because I'm not not doing this this film from as a documentarian more from an inspirational standpoint i can say that you know his his death which i think was premature had a lot to do with the fact that he couldn't protect Hetehechi, which is the valley to the north of yosemite which is very similar to yosemite valley with with high walls which was um unfortunately got damned after um well, from, from the San Francisco earthquake, they didn't have enough water and they felt they needed to have a source of, of water for San Francisco. And so they, they chose that dam. He fought that battle to the degree that it almost feels like it, it killed him when he lost it. Mm. He died of pneumonia, um, just around Christmas in, in Los Angeles. And so that, you know, you think about the battles that he fought, that was the battle that he didn't win, but he wished he he, wished he could have won because the beauty of Hedahechi in some ways was more beautiful than Yosemite.
0: Just to wrap up, um, let's talk about how you're showing this film. You're screening it in small theaters rather than, say, putting it on the festival circuit. Why is that?
7: Well, it's interesting. It's, it's first off, it's a lot of fun to take the film into community and, and be there to do the, do the talk back with the audience afterwards. And it's not a talk back that's like in terms of the mechanics of how the movie was made. It's a talk back that's more around the spirituality of the subject material and how people are activated by, by that. As a filmmaker, that's, you know, where I get the biggest reward for all the work that we've we've put into making the film. The the other important reason to do that is that we can monetize the experience in order to make additional films in the series. It's difficult within the festival circuit because the festival circuit is, is kind of built around people coming to the festival and it doesn't necessarily benefit the um, the filmmaker from a monetary standpoint, although you can get a lot of great press and meet a lot of people. The it's it's about me as a filmmaker owning owning the process and supporting the community and also creating a pathway for for other filmmakers to to go down this route. There are so many small theaters that welcome good quality content and people really like to go and see films in small group settings because we've kind of gone into a culture of not doing that. A lot of people watch fo- movies on their cell phones, they watch them at home, and it's it's a little bit of a callback to that to that that experience that I think we all kind of grew up loving when we first started seeing films.
0: Can you make a living that way?
7: I am making a living that way. Of course, I have to support the work that I'm doing through through other other clients. Um and it's you know, I think when you put yourself out there like like we're doing with this film and taking the film to California and eventually to, to Scotland, you know, people do show up to to see the film and you know, I if even if one person showed up, I, I would be satisfied. So it's it's really not about the money, it's about the experience.
0: Michael, thanks for joining us.
7: Thank you so much for having me on, Andrea.
0: Boulder filmmaker Michael Conti's documentary is The Unruly Mystic, John Muir. It screens at the Lyric Cinema in Fort Collins, January 24th. Older poet and performance artist Andrea Gibson weaves love poetry with protests and rallying cries, gun violence, homophobia, even war. Gibson, whose preferred pronouns are they, them, and their, addresses these issues head-on in their latest collection, Lord of the Butterflies. They spoke with CPR's Anthony Cotton. Hi, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having
2: me. I think when people think of poetry, they go right to the basics. Four-line stanzas, rhymes. Poetry is soothing. It's gentle. That's not what we're talking about here, though, is it?
5: It isn't. And you know, I haven't thought about poetry that way in a long time, specifically with the rising up of the spoken word movement, which tends to be very political, a lot of yelling, and uh, also a lot of love, a lot of uh, loving yelling, um, but a lot of poems that focus on social justice.
2: Loving yelling. I I like (laughs) that. That sounds sounds like probably any relationship.
5: Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, You say this latest collection of yours is the angriest that you've ever done, and I always think that writers write what they know. Are Are you angry?
5: I wouldn't consider myself an angry person, but I, I, I would definitely say that it's an emotion that I've had consistently over the last two years. A lot of this book was written after the election of Trump, and so I think that's why it tends to be angrier than past collections. But while it's angry, it also is fun in lots of ways. It's funny. It's loving. And so I, I I slice it up so that you don't have to stay in the anger for too long. You get a rest from it every now and then.
2: Uh, you identify as genderqueer and use the pronouns they and their. You've described gender as an evolving thing. Where has where has that idea taken you in the last year or so?
5: Well, it's always taking me somewhere. Uh, I've been identifying as genderqueer, I mean, before I had the word, when I was a kid, I just had never felt like a man or a woman, didn't feel like I would grow up to be either of those. And then to discover the word genderqueer, I think it was 2006, maybe, Um, ever since then, that just opened up my world because I, I found a word that Um, seem to represent me and also a word I can in many ways define for myself. And I've always experienced gender as a state of becoming. I don't think there's going to be a landing point for me. I don't think I'm going to get to some final destination of gender. I think it's always evolving and it surprises me sometimes. And most of that surprise I actually discover through the process of writing. I uncover myself a lot in my writing.
2: Do other people recognize it?
5: Most people in the queer community do, yes. Um, and uh, many allies and lots of people in just the general world are starting to catch on to it and using different kinds of pronouns for people and just respecting what people feel, uh, most represented by. Um, but I find that the world is, you know, learning how to use they, them, theirs in a sentence without worrying about, getting grammar all wrong, prioritizing people over grammar, I guess, in some ways, even though it technically is grammatically correct. Um, Yeah, so I think it's something that is sort of blooming in our culture right now, and I I love watching it.
2: You write about the intersection of feminism and racism in the piece in, in this latest collection called White Feminism. Wondering if you could read it for us.
5: Sure. So I have a number of different poems in the book that are set up as definitions. And uh, this one is white feminism, a noun. A racism that claims it is at least better than no feminism at all. Like at least Hitler was a vegetarian. Like we could actually get comfortable being the uneaten animal in the lap of the man making lampshades out of human skin.
2: What prompted you to, to write that piece?
5: I guess it was 2008 maybe where uh I started realizing um all the ways I was a white feminist or had historically been and what that means to me is that I wasn't thinking of feminism in an in intersectional way. So for example example I don't I don't think that you can call yourself a feminist Right now, if you're also uh, desperately wanting a wall on the Mexican border. Um, So it's just um, acknowledging that the ways that feminism has historically looked out for white women and has left women of color behind and just widening the lens to be inclusive of everyone. So we're not more prioritizing of white people while leaving so many others behind.
2: I think I've heard you comment before that you were noticing your audiences were were mostly whites. What impact did that have on you?
5: I mean, uh, it shook me. So, when I first started doing, um, the beginning of my career, I was doing mostly universities, so it was sort of a built-in audience. But as soon as I started performing in, in larger venues and clubs where people buy tickets and come to, I'd look out um, into the audience and notice just tons of white people and um and I started evaluating my own responsibility in that what I had done um and what I hadn't done that had created that because uh that certainly wasn't what I wanted to do or didn't think it was what I wanted to do and it was heartbreaking to look out and see um that folks of color didn't feel they had a place at my shows and so I started taking different steps and what I was writing about, who I was sharing stages with, um, whose voices I was prioritizing in my own learning. If I was educating myself, who were the people educating me?
2: Have you seen then a difference in your audiences? And I, I also wonder, like you said, you, you started changing your approach somewhat, but do you, how did the word get out that you started attracting these new audiences to your shows?
5: I mean, I don't know that it worked like that. Uh, there are still a lot of white people uh, at my shows. And so a lot of it is probably a lot of undoing. Um, there are more folks of color now. and um, But more so than who's coming to the show is what kind of art am I putting into the world to um, make people feel... T- you know, welcome in the world, uh, feeling like they have a a place here, um, inviting and encouraging the voices of, of all people. Um, So I don't want it to be specific of the show. That's just how I noticed I was in many ways, I I had to have been to have created that racist in a way that I hadn't
2: recognized. So it's almost self-discovery in a way. Yeah, for sure. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and we're talking with Boulder poet and performance artist Andrea Gibson. Their latest collection is called Lord of the Butterflies. Let's talk a little bit about process and and again your evolution. Have you have you looked at your work and when you do what is it that you see?
5: <laughs> what do I see when I analyze my work? I mean, I see me and I see, you know, a lot of my writing is actually I write a lot about where I want to be. You know, I could write some of my happiest poems on my darkest days because I write to sort of pull myself into my future self. So oftentimes what comes down on the page is a better version of myself than I actually am because I'm wanting to chase the poem into a more compassionate uh, me.
2: Is it hard to say I'm so much better when I'm writing or, or that's the person I want to be?
5: Oh, I it's I don't think it's hard for me. I mean, the hard points of it for me have been recognizing uh that I hadn't grown in a way that was hurtful to someone. Um that's something even a poem I could put out um having not known enough to maybe write that poem at the time. I'm in mean, knowing that either my life actions or or my writing actions have been harm harmful. My whole life feels like an exploration of myself so that I can show up to you know my own joy and also um the betterment of our world in a way that is active and present
2: well like you say you you reflect on the experiences of others i'm wondering if we if you'll read until we act
5: sure the man asks what i think the us should be doing about syria and i wonder how to answer that from here where the plains overhead mean tropical vacations, we're looking up as what we do to feel hopeful, not what we do to decide when to tell our children to run from the air, to hide the sunrise of their lungs. My mother never had to teach me that to breathe is to die, so I imagine her hand covering my mouth in the dark of our basement, tasting her palm salted with terror. I imagine because to not imagine is its own missile, its own gas, its own horrid war. I imagine because Syria is 6,677 miles away, but would still be called our neighbor if her children were as white as our eyes. I know the white of the eye is the part that does not see. The closest I might ever come to war is the turning of my head. Apathy is intimate, like singing a lullaby to a grenade, then drinking yourself to sleep while it sneaks out the window to explode the skull of a boy. I heard there was a town outside of Damascus, years battered by shelling and airstrikes, where a father turned rocket debris into brightly painted swings where children build their joy on what aimed for their body's dust. I heard one girl's laughter swoops high above the rest, her right hand missing from a missile that hit the market. What do I think we should be doing about Syria? Imagining until we grieve, grieving until we act, like we know what kind of laughter is the sound of the beginning of the end of the world.
2: That is just so incredibly vivid. How do you write that?
5: Um, not pleasantly. Um, one of the things about writing that type of poem is you know, I, I typically enjoy writing, and a lot of the poems in this book I didn't actually enjoy writing. It wasn't a, an act of joy, but more an act of feeling. And I think that's what this poem speaks to, is um, my trust in people. I trust people who are willing to feel, and I trust people who are willing to grieve.
2: You also, in your performances, incorporate humor your work on the stage. Uh,
5: I know, it must be so hard to believe with everything I've shared (laughs) so far today. (laughs) But yes, I do.
2: (laughs) Well, I I want to uh, play a clip from a live performance that you did. Uh, This is Boomerang Valentine in Seattle.
5: My friend musters every bit of new age jargon. She can fit into her tongue and says, what if you are the love of your life? (laughs) I think, oh my God! I hope that's not true, because <laughs> I am absolutely not my type.
2: How does laughter fit into your work?
5: It, you know, it's one of the hardest things to write—writing humor. I have so much respect for my comedian friends, um, but I love it. It lightens me up, and it also, when you're when you're doing a show, or even writing a book where you have so many heavy pieces to have moments of laughter in there where it sort of lets the listener or the reader's guard down um and and then you can sort of sneak in some heavier things after that but just the celebration of life you know uh, i don't want to stand up there and and say all the bad things that are happening if I can't also speak to what it what it is that we are working towards or, or fighting for and that is um, the privilege of, of laughter and joy in our lives and that's what all I think political poems are even if you're screaming the whole time you're you're screaming to bring that kind of joy and to the lives of uh, your life and the lives of others.
2: So in the collection Lord of the Butterflies, there are some short, pithy pieces included. Let's, let's end this interview with one of those. I wonder if you could read All the Good in You.
5: Sure. When all the good in you starts arguing with all the bad in you about who you really are, never let the bad in you make the better case.
2: Andrea Gibson, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Boulder poet and performer
0: Andrea Gibson speaking with Anthony Cotton. Their latest collection is called Lord of the Butterflies. That's our show for today. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. Our audio engineers are Peter Creamer, Michael Hughes, and Shane Rumsey. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.